Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we come to you, and we want to start even now thanking you for your grace. Now, Lord, we are so grateful that you have set your love upon people like us, and it's baffling to us, uh, and Lord, we learn from your word that it should cause us to overflow in praise to you, but also in zeal uh, to live faithfully for you. And so, Lord, our desire uh, this morning over the next hour is that you would help us as we look into your word, Lord, help us to see what you would have us to see and to respond as you would have us to respond. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Or we'll be continuing our study this morning of Paul's directives for spiritual vitality. Spiritual vitality is something we all need. It's something we all desire to have, but something that seems to wax and wane as we make our way through the Christian life. And so we find that it's important for us on the front end to know how do we regain spiritual strength once it's lost, and how do we maintain it once we have it. And the idea, of course, is we want spiritual vitality so that we can fulfill our God-given ministries. And whether you realize this or not, if you are a Christian, you have been entrusted with a specific ministry from God. Ephesians 2.10 says that you have, or we have, been created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a God-given assignment prepared by God for you. It's an assignment that Lincoln can't do for you, that I can't do for you, Rod can't do it for you, your wife can't do it for you, only you can carry it out. This is an assignment particularly catered and structured and fashioned for you. Now, you do that, of course, strengthened by God's grace underneath His directives, but you have been uniquely fashioned and shaped. Your past, all the ups and downs of your tumultuous childhood and the difficulties of your young adulthood and even going through parenting, all of these things God has used to shape you and mold you to be His particular person for the ministry you're in. And it's your responsibility to carry out that ministry, whatever ministry that is, in your home, at TCU, wherever you are, it's your responsibility to carry out that ministry with care, diligence, and humility. And my concern for you, the elders' shared concern for you, is that you would, by God's grace, overcome your spiritual weakness and rise up to fulfill the ministry, this special ministry that God has given you to accomplish. We, as elders, firmly believe that it's our job not to do your ministry for you. Our job is not to do your ministry for you, and that's not because we're lazy. It's because we have received an instruction from the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says that God gave elders, pastors, teachers to the church to equip them for the work of ministry. So pastors then are given to the church to equip. And my job, the elder's job, is to equip you to do the ministry that God has given you to do. We want to come alongside you, support you, as you seek to faithfully fulfill your God-given mission at home, at work, at Calvary, and abroad. That's our, object, our objective. Our objective is to equip you for the work of ministry. And so our ambition then in 2 Timothy chapter 2 has been to draw out some very practical implications to help you as you seek to fulfill the ministry that God has given you. And my objective in one sense has been to bring out some very plain truths and bring them to bear on your own life and in your own ministry so that you won't waste this year. You've been given a fresh year. Or what, what are we? Several, 22 days into it. Um, 
It's fresh. It's new. I don't want you to waste it. Uh, the Lord doesn't want you to waste it. You've been given a, a, another chance at a year, 2023. And you don't want to be one who stands before the Lord at the end of it and has nothing to show. You want to be someone who stands up, strengthened by God's grace, and carries out the ministry God has given you to do. And so I want to help you with that as well. I want to help you fulfill the ministry God has entrusted to your care. And so as we've sort of had that as our backdrop coming into 2 Timothy, we found in Timothy a brother, first century brother, who had been faithfully engaged in the ministry God had entrusted to him. But somewhere along the way, the weight of his ministry life, his existence, all that God had given him to do, had begun to press on him and he was growing weary and tired. And to help him overcome this, Timothy's father, spiritual father in the faith, the Apostle Paul, wrote him 2 Timothy. And in these seven verses, he gave to Timothy four directives. Four directives to reinvigorate Timothy and to get him back on his feet and to fulfill the ministry that God had given him to do. And as we've slowly worked our way through these directives, I'll review them in just a minute, but as we've worked our way through these directives, we've found, I think, significant help and encouragement. And my hope as we continue this study is that you will continue to be enriched and strengthened and compelled uh, to serve the Lord. I got a sense of that just a minute ago as we were singing. It was striking how loud you were singing. And, and I get the impression that we're all eager uh, to serve the Lord and to do the work He's given us to do. And it's really wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to do that with you. So why don't you stand with me? And we'll, we'll read our text, 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. to And then we'll pick back up in verse 7. Or verse 6, rather. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You may be seated. So just by way of review, the first directive from Paul to Timothy is in verse 1. And it's a reminder for the weak Christian, the spiritually weak, weary, exhausted Christian, to draw his daily strength, not from the well of his own capacities, but from the bottomless well of God's grace. It's a reminder that we are not to trust in our own abilities as we carry out the ministry God has given us to do, uh, but we are to draw our strength from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You don't want um, to find yourself going to yourself for the necessary strength to carry out your assignment. God has orchestrated it such that you are to go to Him to get the strength that He, has, he, he will give you to carry out your assignments. I think of 1 Peter 4.10. Each one of us is to exercise the gift God has given us in the strength God supplies. And the way that God supplies you strength is not by some mystical you know, descent of strength, but it's through His Word. And it's through the principles of the gospel of grace. And you then, as you carry out your God-given assignment, you want to make sure you're repeatedly going to grace, to God's grace, and you're strengthening yourself on the reality that your eternal state does not hinge on your success in ministry. It does not hinge on godly children. It does not hinge on a successful career. It doesn't hinge on a well-taught lesson. Your eternal state hinges on what Jesus has accomplished for you. And so you can sing it is well because it truly is well. God has taken care of it all. And that's strengthening yourself 
by grace. You don't want to be on the wheel of performance. You want to be looking to God, strengthening yourself by His grace, being energized to do the work He's given you to do. That's directive number one. Directive number two is found in verse two. And there, Paul directs Timothy to prioritize his most fundamental responsibilities as faithfully passing on the truth of the word from one man to the next. And we sort of extended this uh, directive a bit. And by implication, we can see what Paul is doing here. He's directing Timothy to prioritize ordinary basic obedience. This is Timothy's job. He was to teach the word to others. He was a pastor, an apostolic delegate, if you will. That's what his job was, to teach other people the word. And so Paul, reminding Timothy of this baseline responsibility, is kind of like telling a firefighter to make sure you put out fires today. That's just fundamentally his job. And it, what it reminds us is, is that often when we are weak spiritually, we're led by our feelings, by our emotions, and we stop being led by the truth. And we need to be reminded of the basic responsibilities God has given us so that we can do them regardless of how we feel. Feelings follow. Feelings follow. Feelings follow. Right? Feelings follow truth if things are structured properly. You want your life to be hitched not to feelings but to truth. Right? And then your feelings will get in line. And so, if you want to come out of spiritual weakness, you need to prioritize obeying what you know God's will to be. And that is the Word of God. Now, we find ourselves this morning in the middle of Paul's third directive to Timothy, which is to have the proper or the right expectations about the Christian life. We've spent the last few Sundays here because Paul spends most of his time in this section trying to recalibrate Timothy's expectations. And specifically, not just expectations in general, but a recalibration of Timothy's expectations about the Christian life. You had expectations when you became a Christian, didn't you? Uh, you came to Jesus with a set of expectations. We all do. And Jesus calls us to examine those. He calls us to count the cost before we follow him. And often what happens in the Christian life is your expectations are contrary to the ones Jesus told you to have. And when that happens, there's a collision. And it usually doesn't go well and you find yourself at the bottom. And so the way out of that is to reset or recalibrate your expectations onto what God has told you to expect. And so we've seen Paul gives Timothy a series of recalibrations. The first was the soldier. He wanted to remind Timothy that he, he shouldn't think of himself as sort of just strolling through life, thinking that he was uh, in you know, a peacetime era. No, he needed to think of himself first as a soldier. That the Christian is a soldier. He's been recruited, graciously recruited, into the Lord's army. And the Christian, therefore, lives his life. He comes on board, as it were, with the expectation that he's coming into enlisting in active duty service for the Lord. And so he lives his life just like every soldier would in active wartime. He lives his life with a wartime mentality. And his, his primary objective is not simply to get out alive, but his primary objective is to please the one who enlisted him. That's the target. He receives his orders from above, and he discharges his duty before God, just as any faithful soldier would. That's the first calibration. The second calibration or metaphor that Paul uses to reset, recalibrate Timothy's expectations is the metaphor of an Olympic athlete. Just as the athlete gives himself to training to win a crown, the Christian trains himself for godliness and does so with the understanding that he competes at the highest level. This is not um, an intramural you know, college flag football game. Right? This is a serious competition. Right? This is not wiffle ball in the backyard. Right? This is a serious high-level competition, and Christians ought to engage in training 
with the same mindset of an Olympic athlete. We ought to be as serious as the Olympian about training and being ready to run as the athlete is as in his training. And so Timothy needed to continue, even though he felt weak, he needed to continue pressing on, he needed to continue training hard if he wanted to be God's kind of man. He needed to remember that despite his training, though, the rules that God had laid out were inflexible, and only the athletes who competed according to the rules would receive the crown. Now, all of that brings us to the, fir- the third and final calibration of Timothy's expectations, and that is the metaphor of the farmer. Timothy needed to see himself as a soldier, as an athlete, and then third, as a hard-working farmer. That's what we see in verse 6. Verse 6 says, The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now, the emphasis here is on the phrase hard-working. In Greek, this word is shifted all the way to the front of the sentence, making it clear that Paul is wanting to underscore this particular aspect of the farmer analogy. The word means literally to toil intensely, to sweat and strain to the point of exhaustion if necessary. It speaks to strenuous toil and labor. So clearly... Paul is wanting to reshape Timothy's expectations to include the reality that his ministry, this God-given ministry that Timothy had been created to walk out, that it would require difficult, strenuous, hard work. And some of you, you tend to cringe when you hear that word, work. And you especially cringe when you hear it modified by hard work. Hard work. We don't like hard work. We, we like to work smarter, not harder. We're, we're always looking for a workaround, some way to make the hard work easy. And if we can, we create some sort of machine, you know, some robot to vacuum for us, um, and to take care of all of the hard work for us. Uh, because we, don't, we just don't like it. We don't like hard work. Now, some of, you, some of you do. I understand that. But for the most part, it's sort of against our nature to want to work really hard. We like to find easy way outs. I remember uh, when I was a youth pastor in Arkansas when I was in Bible college. You know, we, we lived, I lived in Arkansas, and it was beautiful where we lived. And so we would go on these hikes into the Ozark Mountains. And one of the girls in our, our youth group, she didn't want to go hiking with us. And so I, you know, I was like every good youth pastor, was like trying to include everyone. Let's all go. Come on, it's going to be fun. And so I went up to her and I said, Stephanie, why aren't you, why aren't you coming with us? What's, you know, what's, what's going on? And she said, Oh, you know, you guys are going to be walking and hiking really far, and it's going to be hard, and you're going to be all sweaty, and I, I just don't do that sort of thing. And so I laughed, and I, I, you know, I thought she was talking about us all being sweaty and smelling bad. And so I laughed and I said, Stephanie, you know, we're all going to be in it together and you won't even smell these guys. You know, we'll all be doing it together. And she laughed at me and she said, I wasn't talking about that. She said, no, 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 I, I don't sweat. I don't do that sort of thing. And, and really, I, you know, I'll never forget that. Um, but that's how a lot of us are about our Christian life. We want it to be easy. We expect for some reason that things in the spiritual realm should just come like that. Why is that? Why is it that we expect it should be easier in the realm of our souls? We, we expect things to come to us without labor, without sweat. And so when life is hard and our growth is slower than we want it to be, we grow tired and discouraged at our little progress. We look at ourselves and we think, I should be way further along at this point. Or we look at our ministries and we think, why am I not seeing any fruit? Why isn't anyone changing? I've been investing in this child for 10 years and they're still just as crazy as they've ever been. Why is that? 
Why is it that we tend to look at our souls, our spiritual lives, and think that things should come to us easily? We want a smooth and easy Christianity. No exertion of energy, no labor, no sweating required. We want instant godliness. And the fact that we have to wait for godliness and work for godliness seems unspiritual. It should be that God should just zap me and get it all taken care of. He could, and he could. But God has his ways. So I think this metaphor about farming and hard work is especially good for us to think about. It brings to us a much-needed correction to this mentality that my Christian life ought to be smooth and easy. Now, what I want to do over the next few minutes is to make some observations with you about the farmer analogy and to help you see these uh, truths and the implications of them for your own life. So I want to give you three observations about the farmer. Three observations about the farmer, really from the first century farmer's perspective. And I'm going to frame them this way. As kind of an imperative. Like the farmer, you must continue to work hard. Though, first observation, your work is monotonous. Like the farmer, you must continue to work hard, though your work is monotonous. It's interesting to me that of all the analogies Paul could have used in this sequence of metaphors on the Christian life, he reserved the dullest, the most boring analogy of all for the climax. Why? It's really interesting. I mean, think of it this way. The soldier's life, it's fun to think of yourself as a soldier in one sense, right? It's exciting, it's adventurous, you're on a mission. The life of an athlete's exhilarating, it's full of glory and ambition and crowns and medals and wreaths and praise. But the farmer's life, the farmer's life lacks the luster of the soldier and the athlete. There's no glory, no crowns, no adventure. In fact, the first century farmer would have typically spent his life within just a few square miles of home. Live, die, just within a square mile of his house. And week after week, month after month, year after year, he would have done almost the same exact thing every day, over and over again, just plodding along day after day, doing the same thing again and again. In fact, what we see in Israel during the first century, and the centuries even before then, is that the entire calendar orbited around the agricultural schedule. Almost half of the year for the farmer would be spent cultivating soil, plowing it all up, getting it ready to plant, and then working a variety of crops that he would have planted as he's cultivating the next plot. And then the second half of his year would have been spent harvesting. Right? So he's cultivating soil, he's tending maybe some side crops, and then he's harvesting a main crop. That's the big picture. But there was an interesting discovery. Uh, I love to read about these things. There was an interesting discovery uh, in the early 20th century of a calendar now called the Gezer calendar. And they think it was actually a schoolboy's tablet. And it might have been a song that he recorded. Uh, it could have been just a memory work for him. But this this um, limestone tablet, and it's got um, ancient Hebrew written on it. And it's essentially a calendar of the farmer's life. So it's probably a song uh, that sort of depicted the farmer's life and sort of underscored the monotony of his life. Let me, let me read it to you. It's very simple. Two months gathering, two months planting, two months late sowing, one month cutting flax, one month reaping barley, one month reaping and measuring grain, two months pruning, one month summer fruit. The end. <laughs> Even that is inglorious. It's it probably just memory work from a schoolboy. Um, but interestingly, this is the, f the oldest reference to the name Yahweh that we have on, uh, in archaeological discoveries. But anyway, that's beside the point. The point here is that you kind of get the idea of the rhythm of the farmer's life here. 
I don't know if you caught that and how good you are at math, but uh, that catalogs 12 months of the farmer's life, gathering, planting, sowing, uh, reaping, pruning. 12 months dedicated to the same type of work with only uh, a little variation, and that variation is largely based on the type of crop he was working. It's not a lot of variation to go from grapes to olives. And maybe that's enough for a farmer, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like a lot of variation for me. But week after week, month after month, year after year, the farmer dedicated himself to the same tireless, monotonous work. So the question is, why does Paul cap this series of metaphors off with such a dull, uneventful figure like the first century farmer? Well, as I've thought about this all week, it occurred to me that of all the metaphors so far, this Farmer metaphor is probably the most realistic analogy to the way our lives actually appear. And what I mean by that is that when we honestly inventory our lives, it's not typically metaphors of excitement and adventure and glory and luster that rise to the top. The things that best, or the metaphor that best captures our perception of reality is really the dull, unexciting, monotonous labor of a farmer. Now, you may be the exception to that, but for most of us, our life is lived. Our lives are lived in the dull, mundane moments of existence. Now, they're along the way certainly punctuated by big events, but the majority of your life and mine is actually... Not that exciting. It's very dull. You probably have five to ten big moments in your life. If you think about it. I don't go walking that road too far. I don't want you to be distracted from the sermon. You probably have five to ten big moments in your life. Marriage, right? When you were married, the birth of a child, a grandchild, graduation, your salvation, maybe some vacations, maybe a job change, retirement. But most of your life up to this point has been lived in the mundane, day, out, day in, day out, vanilla, ordinary existence that we all have. We make meals, we wash dishes, we do laundry, we sell a product, we uh, complete a project, design a system, train a child, mow the grass, fix the toilet, get a haircut, take out the trash, brush our teeth, and if you're good, you floss. <laughs> and on and on we go with the basic mundane things of life on repeat over and over and over and over again. And most of us don't like to think of ourselves that way. We don't like to think about life that way because it's kind of sad. Um, And so what we do is we try to barrel through the mundane moments of life and daydream about big moments. You know, when the house will finally be finished, when the new job will finally start, when graduation will finally come, when the wedding day finally arrives, right? We tend to have uh, this attitude of barreling through the mundane and daydreaming about the larger, more exciting events that are to come. To put it another way, we tend to live our lives from mountaintop to mountaintop experience. And when we come to what you might call the valley of the mundane, we want to get through the valley as fast as we can to get to the next mountaintop. The problem with living that way is you end up barreling through your entire life and having five, ten glorious moments to speak of, and most of your life has been spent thoughtlessly as you've navigated dishwashing, uh, getting that stain out, and training that child. You spend the majority of your life majority of your life in the valley of the mundane. It's inglorious, monotonous, uninteresting, and unheroic. And so you don't want to just press through and lose sight of the significance of all of the monotony of your life. One verse that I've found especially helpful here is Ecclesiastes six nine. I've memorized this verse because I need help in that valley. Right? It's easy to be faithful on the mountain. But what about, uh, you know, doing the laundry or writing 
papers or whatever thing that's on your agenda. One verse that's been helpful for me is Ecclesiastes 6.9, where Solomon says, What the eye sees, listen closely, what the eye sees is better than what the heart desires. What the eye sees is better than what the heart desires. What he means here is that what's right in front of you, what you can see, is better than what your heart is wanting to be right in front of you right now. That's what he means. The, the better portion of your life is not the tomorrow, but it's right now. It's what your eye can see. And the reason for that is because tomorrow does not exist for you. And what does exist is this present moment that you have. You may not make it to tomorrow, but we, you are alive and alert in the present moment. And in fact, that moment is the only moment in which you can be faithful. You like to daydream. We like to daydream about, oh, I'll be faithful next week when I have this opportunity to stand before them and they, you know, whatever. Tomorrow doesn't exist for you. Next week doesn't exist. But what your eye sees is right in front of you and your faithfulness is tested and demonstrated right now in this moment. You can only be faithful in this moment. What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. So Timothy doesn't need to be daydreaming, you know, thinking about, oh, if I could just get these, this church in Ephesus together, I could finally get on to the church in uh, Galatia and have a better time, or whatever, right? He doesn't need to be thinking about, if I could just get these people together, I can move on to bigger things. Or I can do what I want to do. I can go fishing down at the, you know, the Mediterranean. That's, that doesn't need to be what he's thinking about. He needs to be thinking what's right in front of him is where his, his faithfulness is being tested. He can't daydream through the monotony of his work. If he does that, he will continue to decline. What he needs to do is to get up and continue to labor for the Lord moment by moment. He needs to labor even though his work is tedious and it feels like the same thing is being done over and over and over again. You've felt that way, haven't you? In fact, I, when I run into friends from college or seminary and they ask me, what are you doing these days? My well, life has certainly changed from you know, just five years ago. But I find myself saying, I mean, I'm just basically doing the same thing I've always been doing, right? I'm trying to love the Lord, love my family, teach the Bible. I essentially do the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes, if you come in with a different expectation, you look and you think, I do the same thing every week. Well, that's okay. You were designed to do that. Right? You've got to survive. You've got to do the same thing every week to survive. That's true. But you, you are, this is ordinary. This is the expectation you ought to have about your life. Now, you want to make sure that you're doing the same things faithfully, day in, day out. Right? You want to do that. But you don't need to be struck by the monotony of your life. This is the life of the farmer. You should expect for things to sort of unfold every day, day in, day out, in a very similar way. You just want to make sure that you are engaged in faithful labor for the Lord through the monotony of your life. You don't want to go through the, the simple, ordinary, seemingly insignificant tasks in your life and daydream or fantasize about a different reality. You don't want to do that. You want to understand that these ordinary moments are to be redeemed by God or by you for the glory of God. And you want to carry out the work God has given you to do, even if it's repeating the same thing over and over because it's in the ordinary moments of life when your faithfulness and love to God is actually displayed and your integrity is proven. Anyone can do right in big moments. It's the small, ordinary moments that actually make up your existence. And it's in these moments where who you are is really put on display. So, don't slack in the ordinary monotony, the ordinary basic moments of life. The Christian is to, like the farmer, understand this is a reality of life. And he's to seize these ordinary moments for the glory of God and work hard even though 
it all often seems so dull and insignificant. I'm thinking about you moms at home. How many times do you have to tell the child to put the toy up? You know, the same task over and over that seems so monotonous and seems so insignificant. And I just want to tell you, uh, a verse you should probably memorize as you labor for the Lord, kind of doing the th- same things on repeat, is Matthew 10.42. You could call it the Matthew 10.42 principle. It's this. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. Seems like monotony equals insignificance, but that's not true. You do what you do over and over again, and it seems insignificant, but it is not insignificant. It may seem tedious, and it may seem that way, but it is not tedious and insignificant to the Lord. So like the farmer, the Christian must plod along day in, day out, doing these tasks that seem insignificant, knowing that whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones will by no means lose his reward. There are no small tasks in the kingdom. And we are to do them with an eye to pleasing the Lord and to do them faithfully as we labor along. So that's the first point. Secondly, like the farmer, you must work hard though you don't control the outcomes. You work hard though the work is monotonous and it sometimes seems insignificant. How many weeds do you have to pull and they just keep growing back? But you also work hard knowing that you don't control the outcomes. So much of the first century farmer's life depended upon forces outside of himself, things that he could not control. For example, in ancient Israel, the primary crop was grain. And grain prefers a steady, wet season that keeps the ground thoroughly soaked. At least it did in Israel. The buildup of moisture allowed the plants to sprout and reach maturity. But if the rains came too late, or if the rains stopped too early, the grain would suffer. If the rains were not evenly distributed across the growing season, then the ground would harden and plants would be unable to absorb water quickly enough. That was grain. The two other crops, staple crops, were grapes and olives. And they weren't as susceptible to rainfall variation, but they were susceptible to temperature extremes. An unexpected or prolonged frost would kill olive trees and grapes and would severely reduce the farmer's crop. And that's not to mention anything about pests, locusts. I was just reading a that in 2020 there were locust swarms three times the size of New York going through Africa. So that's not to mention anything about these locust swarms that could come in and destroy all the farmer's labor in a moment. The farmer then was at the mercy of God who controlled both the rain and the temperatures and the locust swarms. Even though there was much outside of his control though, The farmer was to zero in and focus and continue doing his part in the farming process. No matter how hard the farmer tried, he couldn't look into the future and see what was coming. He could see rain clouds, but he he couldn't tell whether the frost would come this time or that time. He couldn't tell whether the drought would linger and delay. He could foresee some things, but not all things. The farmer then... And this is, this is very important. The farmer then was bound by his own limitations. Divinely bound by his own limitations. If he spent his time thinking about what might come, he might miss his opportunity uh, to cultivate the soil and get his seed in the ground. If he spent his time trying to predict the future... He might not carry out the responsibilities that God had given him to do in the present. Now, once again, I I find King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes very helpful to make this point. So I want you to flip over with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. So we're we're thinking about outcomes. We're thinking about Paul's analogy here to the farmer. 
the farmer works hard, even though he doesn't control outcomes, and there's so much that he has no idea about. He doesn't know what's coming, yet his responsibility is to continue laboring for the Lord, even though the frost might come tomorrow and wipe out all of his work. Even though the drought may linger, and all of his hard work is thrown away. So I want to look at Ecclesiastes 11, and there are a few enigmatic phrases that I won't try to explain, just point out a few relevant truths for you. Ecclesiastes 11, beginning in verse 1, he says, Cast, or send, your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, and notice the reason. For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. The idea is don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's the ancient Israelite version. Verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. That's common knowledge. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. And then notice verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Verse 3 says that the clouds are full. They pour out rain upon the earth. So if the guy who's supposed to be harvesting the crops, if he keeps looking up at the rain and he's, he, the clouds, and he's thinking the rain is coming, the rain is coming, he stops doing what he needs to be doing. He's only got a little bit of time to get the harvest in, but he's spending his time thinking about things that are beyond his control. Verse 5, Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, So you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Who controls that cloud? God does. He may dump all the rain, more rain than you could ever need, and may kill your crops. And he may not. You don't know that. But you know God's in charge, and you know what you need to be doing. You need to get out there and harvest. The fact that the farmer doesn't know if God will open the windows of heaven, as it were, or keep them shut, it shouldn't keep him from doing the work he knows he needs to do. In fact, it should actually compel him to work twice as hard. Because he doesn't know what's coming. And that's what verse 6 says. Sow your seed in the morning, and then go rest. No, he says, sow your seed in the morning, and don't be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. The idea here is you don't need to sow double you know, your spinach crop or whatever crop you're sowing. However, you don't know which one of these is actually going to germinate. So don't sow in the morning and then say, whew, we missed the cloud all as well. Or we missed the drought or whatever. Don't say that. Sow and then go in the evening, sow again. Because you don't know what is coming. You don't know what God might be doing. You have divinely uh, orchestrated limitations, Mr. Farmer. But don't say, well, I just don't know, so I, you know, I, I don't want to be let down. I don't want to work so hard, and then the drought come. And Don't use that as an excuse. Actually, know that the, the one in charge of outcomes is sovereign, good, and wise. He's in charge. I think of John 15, where it's the Father's pleasure that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God is not wanting your crop to fail. That's not His design. His design is not to make you suffer as a Christian. He is about your fruitfulness in John 15. You have work to do, and He's at work doing His purposes. But this is the, this is the important point that I want you to, to take. You, actually, let me, let me back up here. Here's the question. Why then does Timothy need to hear this? And why do we need to hear this? Well, I think the point is that when we are spiritually weak, we may be tempted to give up on the grounds that we're not seeing the outcomes we want to see. The fruit's not coming in. The maturity's not coming. We're not making the process, progress that we'd like to see. And I want to say to you, that's not your business. That is, that is like the farmer 
having his crop fully ready to harvest, but he's so scared to go harvest it because there are some clouds over here and it might rain today and he didn't want to waste his time out there. That's not his business. His business is to get out and harvest the crop. And God is the one in charge of outcomes. The same is true in your spiritual life. You have a job. You have a responsibility. You can't control the pace of your growth. You contribute significantly. All right? You work, and you must be working, but God is the one who's ultimately in charge of outcomes. You don't want to get so caught up in trying to do God's job for Him that you fail to do the job that God has given you to do. I love the way Jesus puts this in Mark chapter 4, where he says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. That's a farmer who's focused on doing his job. He does his job, he sows his seed, and then he goes to bed. Theology of sleep. He sows his seed, and then he goes to sleep. And what's happening while he's sleeping? God is at work carrying out his purposes. God is accomplishing his purpose. The farmer doesn't know, have to know, how the germination process works. He just needs to do his job. And friends, that is, this is why I think this analogy is so helpful, because that is the Christian life. It's the Christian ministry. We work doing what we know God has called us to do, and through the folly of our preaching, God works. He carries out His purposes. We labor day in and day out to entrust the Word into the hearts of our kids, our family members, and somewhere along the way, The seed germinates. And we know not how. But God is doing it. God controls the outcomes. We control, listen carefully to this. God controls the outcomes. We control our efforts. We control our labor. We control our persistence. We control our commitment. But God controls the product of our labor. The outcomes belong to Him. And He brings things to fruit in His timing and in His way. And until we see the fruit from our work, we patiently labor and leave the outcomes to Him. Alright, so don't get wrapped around trying to do God's job for Him. Leave outcomes to Him and you do your part. So, Timothy needs to expect that his work will be hard and laborious, that it will often seem monotonous and unimportant, but he must continue regardless. At other times, he will feel like he's sowing seed in vain, and there's no fruit from his labor. But still, his job is not to cause fruit to appear. He can't do that, but he can labor as the faithful farmer to do his part, to plant the seed, and patiently wait for the Lord of the harvest to bring about growth. And then third, Timothy and you and I must, like the hard-working farmer, labor with our eyes on the harvest. Verse 6 says, It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. The hard-working farmer is the one who's up before daylight and works till evening. Endures the cold, the heat, the rain, the drought. His work is often grueling, marked by uncontrollable setbacks that we've mentioned. Yet despite all the setbacks and the labor, the faithful farmer continues to press on. And you think, when is he going to give it up? How many droughts does he have to go through before he decides to sell the farm? He just keeps plodding along year after year, month after month, doing the same thing. And how does he do it? How does he sustain his effort when things are so monotonous and they seem so hard and the outcomes seem so sparse? The answer is because he has his eye fixed on the harvest. 
He knows if he doesn't plant that seed and fight that locust, there will be no corn for him to enjoy. His eye is fixed on the harvest. And so Paul says the harvest, the, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to, to receive his share of the crops. The harvest then compels the farmer to press on through all the difficulties of life. And the point here is that it's only the farmer, the farmer who works hard and sticks with it and perseveres in his work who will fully attain his purpose. In the same way, Timothy needs to get his eyes off the clouds and the difficulties that are in front of him and remember the point of all his labor in Ephesus. Timothy needs a reset. He needs to remember what is, all this is about. He needs to remember that heaven and hell are at stake here. Just like the farmer labors for the harvest, Timothy, you need to labor for the harvest as well. Timothy needs to remember a couple of fundamental things. That First, farmers don't plow just because they enjoy plowing. Farmers don't weed because they enjoy weeding. They don't chase off bugs because they get a thrill from it. Farmers do the hard, meticulous work because it's all leading to one glorious end for them. And that is the harvest. In the same way, the Christian labors away in very difficult, challenging, and glorious work. And all of it is leading towards one great end that should compel us to persevere when life is difficult. And that is the harvest of heaven. That's the Christian's great reward. And that's the target. And I'll tell you, we sing about this this morning. If you have that mindset of the farmer, all I'm doing is I'm storing up treasure in heaven. And one day, I will get the return for my investment. If you live with that mindset, you'll find joy that you never knew you had. And then when you finally arrive in the presence of the Lord, one glance at Jesus will make amends for all your monotonous work. All will be well in that moment. When you're finally in heaven, Christian, you'll thank God that you labored as hard as you did when the time comes for him to examine your work. And we know that's not unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8 tells us that each servant or each farmer is essentially rewarded according to his own labor for the Lord. We're talking about spiritual rewards. In the midst of the, the dullness sometimes of your Christian life and the monotony of your Christian life, you need to remember that your father who sees in secret will reward in secret. You need to remember that this task seems small, but the Lord Jesus told me that if I give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, I will by no means lose my reward. And I'm doing a lot more than handing out cups of water today. Right? You need to remember that heaven will make amends for all your work. And those who have labored the hardest for the Lord on earth will have the sweetest rest with the Lord in heaven. Now, I could say more about that, <clears throat> but I'm going to jump down to my conclusion here. Let me just sort of wrap up all that I've been saying in verses 3 to 6. Each of these analogies, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, they remind us that the Christian life is not a breeze. It's not easy. It's hard. It requires diligent effort, commitment, resolve, and patience. And often I think that we live our lives in such a discouraged state because we just simply have the wrong expectations about the Christian life. We, we think it should come easy. We think God should and will zap us. I remember when I became a Christian, it was that way. You know, for years of my life, you know, I was reading the Bible, I was praying, I was doing all I could do, and I just kept praying, God, take this sin away from me and make me love you and you know, do these things. And I kept thinking God was just going to zap me 
and all would be well. And every month, you know, I'd think, okay, this is the month that's coming. And here's the month that all is going to align and my life will be perfect. And things will sort of, my path will, you know, clear and I'll be able to walk to heaven on a smooth, easy, level pathway. And it just never came for me and it still hasn't come for me that way. I think we often forget, one writer said, what we need in the Christian life is this a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. We need the endurance of a soldier, focus of an athlete, the patience and resolve of a farmer. And we need to realize that God has his methods and ways of making you like Jesus. And they're different than your own. He doesn't zap us. He calls us to strengthen ourselves by His grace, to do the fundamental responsibilities He's given us to do, to conceive of our lives as the soldier, as the athlete, and as the farmer, and to leave all the outcomes up to Him. Uh, One hymn that I came across when I was sort of in this struggle of praying God would zap me and fix all my problems and make me, uh, put me on the straight and narrow seamlessly, uh, was John Newton's hymn, Uh, The first line is called, I ask the Lord that I might grow. Some of you know this hymn. Uh, It's a wonderful hymn. And I I came across this hymn, and it hit me so hard because I thought, that's exactly what I've been thinking. Uh, And Newton just sort of puts you in your place. And so I want to read this hymn for you. And it's a good way for us to sort of cap off this study of expectations. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll finish this text looking at verse 7. Well, let me read this hymn to you, and, and I'll say a couple of things at the end of it. He writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue this worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set you free "'and break your schemes of earthly joy "'that thou mayst find thy all in me.'" Now that's laboring for the harvest. Understanding that Life is hard. It doesn't come easy here. But God is at work. He's doing His good work in us. And He's constantly using the affairs of our lives to break our schemes of earthly joy so that we will find our all in Him. So my prayer for you guys uh, is that you will adopt the mentality of the athlete, the soldier, and the farmer. And that I will increasingly do that. And I will be challenged and rebuked as I look at you, living with the right expectations, and that you may also look to me and be challenged and encouraged to press on as we live with the right expectations and fulfill the ministries that God has given us to do. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy to know you. And it's a joy to have such a sufficient revelation as your word. 
And we're reminded in these passages just how important it is to have the right expectations. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us to uh, recalibrate our expectations onto the right ways of thinking, that we would live faithfully as soldiers in your army, we would train and, and have our eyes on the prize as a, an Olympic athlete, and that we would labor earnestly, hard work, committed to doing your will in your way, and leaving all the outcomes to you, working through the monotony, and knowing that heaven will make amends for all of our work. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.